Well, good morning, church. My name is Joe Haverlock, and I'm one of the pastors here at Four Oaks. And it is my great joy week after week to be able to lead you in worship through song. And this morning, I was blessed because I got to receive in that. But I'm also looking forward to this morning being able to uh, lead us in worship through the opening of God's word together. And I'm excited about that. So um, we'll do that here. But also, we have some uh, guests with us here. We have our students. We call uh, this one of our big church Sundays. So our kids are with us. Kids, you here? All right, can we, can we welcome them this morning? All right. You guys should have been able to grab one of those activity sheets and maybe some crayons on your way in. But believe me, I'll know if it gets too boring because your parents will be grabbing those crayons out of your hands. So I need you to hold those real tight for me, all right? Now, last week, um, we finished up, uh, Pastor Rob finished up the uh, series through Romans that we've been going through, at least the first leg of it. We'll take a pause, and then we'll head back into it in the fall. Uh, And then in a few weeks, we're going to be heading into a sermon series uh, that will be taking us through highlighting some of the key moments of the nation of Israel and their redemption story uh, throughout the Old Testament. But today, I thought, you know, I want for us to take a little pause and maybe peek into the book of Psalms for just a few moments. You know, we've kind of been wrestling through some amazing passages through the book of Romans, and, and I, I really believe God's just been revealing himself uh, just so faithfully and so fully through the unfolding of the book of Romans. I know we've all enjoyed that. But as we said from the beginning, these theological truths were not just meant for winning debates, right? They're for drawing us to worship him more fully. And so this morning, I want us to turn to Psalm 103 as kind of a way for us to review some of these truths that we've been studying and kind of let them, let them marinate in our soul a little bit and cause us to pour out our hearts in genuine worship as we do that together, all right? So Psalm 103, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and we'll read God's word together. Psalm 103, 1 through 22, the chapter. Let's read. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place place knows it no more. 
But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. God, we want this text, though it may be familiar to some of us, though we've maybe spent some time in it throughout the years. Would you bring it to us fresh? Would you allow our hearts to erupt in praise as we see the great God more clearly as your spirit reveals to us? And I pray that as your people gathered around your word that you would bless us and we would bless you, Lord, because you are deserving of all praise and of all honor and of all glory. So we come to you now as your people asking you to feed us with your word And it's in the name of Jesus that we come. Amen. You can be seated. So everyone is intrigued by greatness, right? Or at least kind of what we perceive as greatness. That's why we climb mountains or go to the moon and then try to go to Mars. That's why we run marathons. Well, not me, but maybe some of you. It's why we, we post pictures of our food from swanky restaurants. And it's probably why... YouTube personalities have any income at all. I mean, it's probably why social media exists altogether. You see, people can take whatever that they think is great and they can share it with the world. So when you get sidetracked for an hour watching a baby panda sneeze and then you watch the remix in slow motion and then fast motion and then the one with the techno beat, that's your fault. But it's definitely encapsulated in the creation of the like button, isn't it? The like button. We are people who like to praise. C.S. Lewis says it this way. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress. Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, Actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. But praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. It highlights the fact that we are creatures who can't help but find someone or something to praise, even if it's ourselves. Think about why your phone has cameras on both sides, right? We live in a selfie age. We're actually really good at worship, even if we don't maybe realize it. Harold Best, in his book, Unceasing Worship, um, he describes it this way. He says, nobody does not worship. Nobody does not worship. It's kind of a funny way to say it, but he describes all of humanity as continuous outpourers. We're always looking for something to pour out our praise and our affection toward, toward things that we think are great. It's what we do. We praise. We're wired to praise the things that 
we think are great in our eyes. But this morning, we have the opportunity to listen in on a conversation that the psalmist has with himself. And it's designed to inspire worship among God's people. And so my hope is that as we encounter the greatness of God, it will be something that raises our affection to the highest heights of praise. So let's grab our Bible and go to Psalm 103, and we'll look at that. I've titled this message, A Song for Every Season of the Soul. A Song for Every Season of the Soul. And I think that the big idea that David wants to get across as he composed this hymn was this. It's a call to soul-stirring worship for a forgetful yet loved people. A call to soul-stirring worship for a forgetful yet loved people. So this psalm is very much a hymn of praise, and I want to break it down into three sections. So number one, the solo in verses one through five. Number two, the rehearsal in verses six through 18, and the choir in verses 19 through 22. Were you expecting anything different from your worship pastor? So number one, the solo. So right away we notice that the opening verses of this psalm form a bookend. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It can almost become so familiar that we just pass right over it. But David ends and begins this psalm as if he's arranged it as a solo to be sung. And the soul is the audience that listens and receives. It's a very internal, intimate ballad of the soul that's performed within the confines of his own heart. And David brackets this psalm kind of in a, a summons of praise to the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the ages. He serenades his own soul to once again see the greatness of God. And like I said, when we see something great or valuable, it's our instinct to tell someone about it, to describe it, to give our take on it, right? C.S. Lewis says again, he says, he describes it this way, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I wish we spoke like that still today. The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. But here, David's audience is not others, it's himself. More specifically, he's talking to his own soul. And you might be thinking, well, that's a little odd that he's talking to himself, but it's actually a, a biblical principle. You see, we don't want ourselves talking to us. We reject the message of follow your heart because we know what the scripture says about our hearts, and it describes the natural state of our hearts as desperately wicked, so we can't always trust our hearts. In this psalm, we're not really sure what particular circumstances were surrounding David when he composed this song, but it's clear that in this season, his soul was not aimed toward God with a wholehearted worship. And this morning, as you reflect, maybe you find your own soul in a similar season. And so that's why I believe David prepares the solo. 
When David is telling his soul to bless the Lord, he is lifting up the Lord to his soul like a prized painting, showing it all of its intricacies and all of its textures. He's literally saying maybe something like this. Hey, soul, the Lord is worthy of all of your affection. Hey, soul, treasure God with all of your heart. Don't forget the most valuable thing that you have. Soul, give yourself completely to him. Praise the Lord. And throughout this psalm, we can see how important the word all is to the psalmist. We see it here at the beginning as well. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. It's like he's saying that in order to praise the most wonderful being in all of his greatness, you must match that praise with an equal response. All that is within you. It's an all-encompassing praise that's not just limited to the 75 minutes we have here on Sunday morning. But you must be all in. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says this way about praise. He says, it's body and soul, eyes and ears and all limbs and sense, reason and faculties. Bless the Lord, all that is within me. Now, you might be... Uh, with me on this one. I really hate swimming in cold water. We're originally from, from Michigan, and so one of the things that we loved since we've moved to this area of the country is that we can enjoy the warm waters of the Gulf. I mean, when you go to the beach and you, in the summer, you walk from the beach sand into the water, it's like you can't even feel the transition. It's just the water's so warm, it's great. But if you were to take a visit to the Great Lakes in Michigan, you, and maybe if you tried to do the same thing where you tiptoed into the water, what you would find is your legs would then start to hurt. Because it's, the water is so cool, you can't just tiptoe into the water. And so sometimes we would just go out to the pier and just jump in because you just got to get it all, all over with. So we jump, we go out to the pier, we jump, jump in. If you try to tiptoe, it just makes it worse. So we would just jump right off the pier, and then you'd hit the water, and it would almost like shock you for a moment. But then you're good to go. You swim all day. But um, if, as we look at this psalm, um, a I would say a complete worship is the only response to a completely good God. See, David, he needed kind of a state-of-the-soul address to give to himself because I believe he was feeling the drift of half-hearted worship setting in. His worshiping heart was being lulled to sleep by maybe lifting up other things or giving himself to other things or distracted by lesser things instead of being just enamored by the great I am. And church, this summer, let's have a talk with our own soul and not watch as we see our worshiping heart simply tiptoe into the water. Are your affections being lifted by the next greatest distraction? Or maybe is your strength being sustained 
by the next summer vacation that you're looking forward to that will eventually end? Is your hope in satisfying your soul by maybe just checking out this summer? Or maybe you're just feeling hopeless because of the intensity or difficulty of the season of your soul right now. Let me encourage us. Let your soul be awakened by a view of God, like the sensation of jumping into the water off that pier, experiencing the cool, refreshing, maybe even shocking uh, water on every nerve of your skin. You see, complete worship is, an, is the only response to a completely good God. And this psalm is, as we said, a soul-stirring call to worship him with all that is within you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within you. So if complete worship is the only response to a completely good God, then how do we raise our affections in response? Unless we first put our eyes on the colorful canvas of God's goodness. Amen. As the king of uh, the nation of Israel, I think David kind of keys in here on a real shared human reality. And that's that we often don't need new information. But it's more likely that in our flesh, we just need to be reminded of the truth that we already knew because we so easily forget. Maybe you've seen this, this commercial. Uh, husband walks in. He's got a takeout bag full of wings. He's got a smile on his face. And he says to his wife sitting there, he says, hey, I remembered the ranch. Sounds like this, this scenario might have happened before. And she looks at him kind of unimpressed, and she says, great, how did everything else go? And he's confused. He said, everything else? She says, um, picking up our child? And he kind of slinks back. He says, ah, cool, cool, uh, I'll, be, I'll be right back. And he walks out the door. But how often do we live day by day by the, and get distracted by the appetites of our own soul? by lesser things. And David says, oh soul, don't forget the bigger picture. Don't just look at the ranch. Remember your children. Respond to the greatness of God. And this is the part of the, of the psalm where it kind of hits the chorus. And the chorus of a song is something that kind of reoccurs and it, it reminds us. It comes up again. It, it also sometimes bears the key theme of the song. And in verse 2 here, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? And forget not all his benefits. Benefits. What's he talking about? Well, I don't think he's talking about the cosmic benefits package that comes with God. No, it's God himself. He is the great benefactor. He is a good and gracious God. That's who he is. So you don't just automatically get your praise on. You, you respond. Praise is a response to what? To the source. So what does David want, not want our soul now to forget? Well, he reminds us that his soul uh, looks upon the mercy of the Lord through the redemptive work of God in his own life. And in verses 3 through 5, he spells out several of these participles that function kind of like 
sticky notes for the soul. So we'll go through those. Don't forget the God who forgives, the God who heals, redeems, crowns, satisfies, and renews. He is the source of all these things, and they are not disconnected with his character. Verse 3 says that he forgives all your iniquities. Only God has the power to forgive sins. And that sounds so simple, and we've heard that over and over, but let that sink into your soul. You would be hopeless. Only God could forgive sins. It's the story in, in Mark 2 uh, where the paralytic man is healed, and then the Lord forgives his sins. The scribes even look and say, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo. Exactly. God was standing before them. So again, we pick up on the, the scope in this psalm of God's forgiveness with the emphasis of this word, all. There is no sin outside the scope of God's forgiving power for all those who trust in him. So, O oh soul, do not forget the God who forgives all your iniquities. And he continues on. Heals all your diseases. Well, what does he mean? Does he mean physically, spiritually? Physically, I believe, I believe he can. And if not in this life, and certainly in the next, God is the great healer. But I think here he's more specifically honing in on, on as he restates, forgives all our iniquities. He heals all of our diseases. Sin is like a terrible disease. David knew this. He's the one who committed adultery and then tried to cover it up with murder. I mean, it's straight out of CSI Bible edition. And after that happened, he says in Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Sin is like the disease of osteoporosis. When you allow unconfessed sin to stagnate in your life, it's like your frame is disintegrating slowly until it finally breaks. So when it comes to sin, we can be assured that God gets all of it. Thanks be to the great healer of all our deathly diseases. Oh soul, do not forget the God who heals. Verse 4, redeems your life from the pit. I think we're, again, so easily, we so easily pass by this because it might be a familiar word, redeems. Well, this word was very significant throughout the book of Ruth. It's the word that was used for Boaz, who took in a Moabite woman whose husband had died and her bitter mother-in-law, who had no way of supporting themselves and would have literally perished in that society because they wouldn't have been able to care for themselves. And Boaz, he acted in love towards them when he didn't have to. In fact, according to the law, there was somebody else who was a closer of kin who should have stepped in, and they didn't, and Boaz did. Boaz stepped in to marry Ruth and become the kinsman redeemer. He did all of that, even the bitter mother-in-law part. He not only provided for them, but 
God also used him to make a way for their family legacy to continue on. And even more than that, to bring about ultimate redemption for all of God's people. You see, through that union, Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. And that was David's grandfather and the forefather of Jesus. He preserves his people through his great redemption. That's our God. Church, let me encourage us. The, the Lord is able to save no matter what the nature or the threat or crisis is. And if you think back over the course of this year, many have gone through a lot. Many have lost jobs, had to move. Many of us have lost dear people in this season, friends, children, brothers, sisters. Let me remind us, God still cares for you. Consider this. Yahweh desires to do so much more. Even though he has cared for you in these ways, he is the one who redeemed your life from the pit, the eternal pit. It's amazing. He takes great delight in redeeming us as his people. So David says, O soul, do not forget the God who redeems. In verse 4, he continues on, crowns, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He doesn't just save us and then bring our account to zero. He crowns us as royal children with all the benefits of the king's treasury. The greatest of his treasures really is alluded to here when he mentions steadfast love and mercy. This is a very key idea in the psalm and something that David has buried in many of the sections of this psalm as we continue to see over the course of us looking at this text. God's steadfast love and mercy is the crowning description of his relationship with his people. O soul, do not forget the God who crowns you. Verse 5 satisfies you with good. God is a good God, and he wants to delight his people in his goodness. In fact, he wants you to be all satisfied in his goodness. But hearing that, you may say, I just, I just don't see God's goodness in my circumstance right now. I struggle to see that right now. Speak to your soul. Oh, soul, if you would just turn your gaze to these realities, you would need to look no further. It's so refreshing to know that God's goodness renews, renews our strength like the mighty wings of an eagle in flight. I'm reminded of a passage in Isaiah where it says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's the opposite of a sin-cursed, diseased bones that would break under the weight of our sin. This morning, are you feeling the crushing weight of your bones, the sin upon your bones in this season? Maybe you're just feeling the crushing weight as 
as a parent this season. Maybe as one who's caring for someone close, maybe an aging family member, maybe someone sick close to you, or maybe you're just a student who's just anxious about the future, or anyone who's just anxious about the future. Church, God rejoices in doing good and renewing his people. But are you looking for something that you can do to get some relief? It's often our response. Let me remind us that the call to worship is the call to remember. And sometimes we just need to sit still and celebrate his benefits in the busyness of our daily lives and instruct our soul. Oh, soul, do not forget the God who satisfies and renews. David wants to get even more specific. He turns on what I kind of think of like he turns on the history channel for his viewers because he's about to show them a little bit of the nation's history. And so we talked about the solo. This is the solo that he sings to his soul. And number two, it's now the rehearsal. Don't forget God's steadfast love. In verse 6 and 7, we can see what God does. And then in verse 9 and 10, we see what God does not do. And then right there in the middle, verse 8, is this Hebrew word that's known throughout all redemptive history. And it's right there in verse 8. Let me read it for us. It says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, here it is, steadfast love. It's this word translated from the Hebrew hesed. It's God's loyal, covenant-keeping love. And David uses this word specifically throughout the psalm, and even in verses 6 and 7, to help us remind us what God does. So it's such a powerful phrase in all of uh, Israelite history that they would have immediately recognized it. It was so closely tied with the name and character of God. And it was the God that they experienced on numerous occasions throughout their history. It was the famous self-description of God himself. And in verse 7, David specifically refers to how God made himself known to Moses on the mountain. And this is where David reminds his soul of the nation's history by referencing Moses. And he reveals the God who works, the God who made himself known, the God who acts, the God who loves. So I want to look for just a moment specifically at this passage in Exodus that he refers to. Um, So Exodus 34, verse 5, we'll put it on the screen there too, and let me read this. Exodus 34, 5 through 8. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there to Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is the moment right before this happens. It's where the people sinned because they had just made a golden calf to worship. Remember what I just said about um, being people who are pretty good at worshiping? Well, they should have been wiped off the map for doing that. Instead, what does God do? He shows his mercy to his people. And Moses asked God to show him his glory, to make himself known to Moses. So God says, I will show you my name. And when he says, when he reminds him that he is the God who is the God of steadfast love, this Hesed love, Moses' response was to kneel and worship. And he worshiped God because he was the God who acted with goodness when they deserved his wrath. God loves his people with a, with a merciful, gracious, loyal, steadfast love. And so with the story fresh on David's mind, he just keeps giving us more of God's steadfast love. This is the kind of love that's, that's not powerless, but married to action. This is the God who, in the psalm says, he, he works righteousness. See how he makes himself known to his people. See how he acts. This is God's hesed, steadfast love. And this is God's love for us as his people today. So church, let's rehearse our own history. Rehearse how God has acted in loyal love to our own souls. My wife and I, Julie and I, just celebrated our 15-year anniversary, and we had a chance to get away for a couple of days. And uh, one of the things that we did, though, was that was one of the most life-giving things that we had done in a while was to sit down, and some, take, take some time, and to recount some moments of our relationship. And so we talked about our, our wedding, and we talked about you know, our first one-bedroom apartment that we were in, and we talked about all kinds of stuff, even the difficult seasons, even in the seasons when we saw the worst in each other. And then we celebrated what we have learned and appreciated about one another and how we have seen each other grow. And it was one of the most amazing things to be able to just pause and to say, what has transpired? And as the bride of Christ, let's take opportunities, even this summer, and find creative ways to remember all that God is doing, all the ways that he is working in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our kids. Before you get too busy into the summer, maybe take some time and pause and celebrate. Moving on in verse 9 and 10, it says this. It says, he will not always chide, nor will he deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So secondly, David wants to rehearse what God does not do. We said what God does. This is what God does not do. So we've talked about God's love, but what about God's righteous anger? Well, David doesn't avoid the subject. God's righteous anger for our sin, he says, was poured out on Jesus. And guess what? God doesn't keep bringing it up. 
it is finished. Isn't it good to know that God doesn't chide or keep his anger forever? Maybe you've experienced those times in your life where you felt that. He doesn't, but God doesn't deal with us according to our sins if we've placed our trust in Christ. Psalm 32, 4 and 5 says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise God. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. Instead, he dealt with Jesus according to our sin. So moving forward in the psalm, there's these three illustrations that David gives of God. In verses 11 through 13, and you see him there, illustration of, of height and width and the picture of a father. So David plants these three pictures because I want, think he wants our imaginations to understand God's love. So verse 11, the height. Think about this. His love is so great that it reaches infinitely farther than any rocket we could send into deep space. Verse 12, the width. He for, his forgiveness is so certain that once he paid for our sins, he sent it infinitely east while he takes us infinitely west. And the picture in verse 13 as a father. I don't know what your experience and what your picture of a father is, but if we're getting our picture from God as Father, it looks like this, an amazingly compassionate Father who knows you intimately from the beginning, knows your childlike weaknesses, knows your limitations, and yet he delights to hear your endless babblings, guide you in your juvenile faith, and keep on pursuing you just like a prodigal son. These are the pictures that we see of God. So after he gives us these three pictures, he contrasts that now with some illustrations of man. So this is verses 14 through 16. But let me warn you, these illustrations aren't necessarily flattering. It's not going to be the kind of descriptions that will boost your self-image. It's like this. You are a piece of dust, a blade of grass. Think about that. Because we often like to think of ourselves as trophies. But dust is generally the thing that we wipe off the trophies that have been sitting on the, on the shelf for a long time, isn't it? But realistically, he doesn't even compare us to a, a, a little league trophy, a little league participation trophy even. But we're like the dust that he wipes off of it. And get this, in your constant forgetfulness of the greatness of God, though we forget, verse 14 says, he remembers. He remembers your dusty frame. 
Not once has he forgotten you as a daughter and a son. Not once has he cast you away like the wind carries a dead flower petal to the ground. But he says this in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So rehearse this. Long after your life has faded like a blade of grass, God's steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping, faithful, hesed love will endure to a thousand generations. And never once will he let up on his love for you or stop showing his mercy or relent in renewing his people. Though the effects of sin can last for a long time, even generations, but God's mercy is everlasting. And who is this mercy towards? Verse 17 and 18 says, towards those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So as we rehearse this, the Spirit of God is working in our soul and causing us to bear fruit like obedient sons and daughters. But don't hear me say this. Don't hear me say that you just need to need to do better, work harder, or gain God's favor by staying cleaner and to receive his love. No. He's saying that for all his daughters and sons, he has set his love on you, and it is transforming you from lawbreakers into covenant keepers, from forgetful enemies into members of his royal family. This is what God meant when we read in Jeremiah 31 and 32. It says this, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Take heart. Those who truly have experienced God's steadfast love are those who have been given a new heart of worship a heart that causes us to remember and to respond. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Faith keeps the covenant by looking alone to Jesus, while at the same time, by earnest obedience, it remembers the Lord's commandments to do them. Rehearse and remember this truth. And let it be a call, as we said, to soul-stirring worship for a forgetful yet loved people from a faithful and remembering God. So we said the solo, the rehearsal, and now in verses 19 through 22 is the choir. This is where the choir comes in because Verses 19 through 22 say this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. 
obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The call turns from an inward cry or an inward solo into a contagious invitation for all the hosts of heaven and earth to join in and to erupt with the same tune. It's really the crescendo of the psalm, reminding us that God reigns. He is the sovereign king who rules over all. And this is the picture of all the hosts of heaven and earth recognizing God's steadfast love, remembering and rejoicing in his kindly reign. This is what the kingdom of God was intended to look like, and it certainly will. This is the story of God's redeemed people in all satisfying, unceasing worship, remembering and responding to him alone. And now he is calling on us to spread his name and dominion all over the earth. We're not to keep this melody for ourselves, church, but we're to let others heal it, hear it. So let your kids know what it means to you, what God's steadfast love means to you. Let your coworkers know that you have a song. And let your priorities be drastically altered by it. And disciple others to harmonize with it. One day we will dwell with God forever. We know that. And his steadfast, loyal love and goodness will be realized in every place. The mighty king of heaven is there. The, the one king who is greater than David has invited us into his kingdom and has crowned us with his steadfast love and mercy. And so those who trust in this king will be a part of his house and his kingdom forever and ever. And our response should be just like Moses when God described himself to him. Remember? Kneeling in worship. Even our posture should be transformed by it. So this morning, church, let's teach our soul to sing, bless the Lord. Because this is the tune that will resound for all of eternity. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He ends Psalm 103 almost just like it began. Kind of like saying, oh, let this kind of worship begin with me. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Church, as we now move from this psalm into our time of communion, we come before the table of the Lord with the same posture. This is the posture that we come rehearsing and responding to who God is. 
So as we do this week after week, we don't want this to be something that just becomes just a ritual or, or, or cold, but let it be a time where we worship God, where we remember all of who he is. We rehearse it to our soul. Christ died for you. Jesus shed his blood for you. And then we rejoice together.